name is Lloyd Sarbutz, and this podcast is brought to you by Liberia, a bookshop by Second Home. In this episode, I welcome Pulitzer Prize winner, MacArthur Fellow, and esteemed sociologist Matthew Desmond. Matthew is the author of Poverty by America and evicted Poverty and Profit in the American City. In this discussion, recorded live at Liberia in March 2023, Matthew shares his research on what poverty is, why one of the world's richest nations struggles to eradicate poverty, and the potential changes in policy and attitude needed to do so. I hope you enjoy it. Firstly, I just wanted to introduce Matt, um, who is the Morris P. Durin Professor of Sociology at Princeton University and a contributing writer at the New York Times Magazine. A MacArthur Fellow, Desmond is a leading expert on poverty, homelessness and public policy. His previous book, Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City, won the Pulitzer Prize and National Book Critics Circle Award. So, Matt, your book is not solely a theoretical exercise. Uh, It's more intimate and searching. Um, Evicted was a book where you actually detailed people's stories. Um, and you tell stories of those uh, other experiences, uh, coupled with the research and statistics um, that is your background. Um, and you've used all of that information to teach courses on inequality and to draft public policy. Um, please may you share your experiences from your life and work and the intention for your latest book, Poverty by America. Yeah, sure. It's really uh, nice to be here with you. It's uh, it's really rare that I get a chance to have a kind of intimate conversation like this. And so thank you all for coming on on this really dreary, gross night. And um, and thanks so much for hosting me in this uh, beautiful, incredible bookshop. So I grew up uh, down the line a little bit. Um, uh, my family didn't have a lot of money. Our gas got shut off, as is, is a common London experience now, I understand. Um, our home got foreclosed before everyone else was doing it. And um, and I think that made me see how poverty diminished and stressed my, my own family. And uh, I kind of devoted my adult life to it. You know, I've lived in very poor neighborhoods. I lived in a mobile home park in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is city in the middle of the country by Chicago. I, I lived in a rooming house in that city, in the inner city. I've, I've spent a lot of time with tenants getting evicted, union reps, done a lot of statistical work, da 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 But I still didn't feel that I had this adequate story about why there's so much poverty in America. Like someone just stopped me on the street and was like, look, why do we have so much poverty in this land of dollars and, and what can we do to finally end it? What would be my answer? And I think I didn't have one. And this book is, is my, my answer. You talk in the book that there are a lot of books written about the poor and poverty, but not why or how it comes about. So I guess the obvious question is, considering we we have narratives and we have ideas that we tell ourselves, what is poverty? Because you list it as different facets, different uh, manifestations. Can you elaborate? Sure, so officially in, in America, poverty is an income level. If you fall below a certain line and you have a certain number of kids, you're considered poor by American standards. So 38 million Americans live below the official poverty line. That's like the population of Australia. Uh, one third of Americans now live on less than $55,000 a year, which is not officially poor, but what else do you call it? Trying to raise like two kids in Miami on $55,000 a year. 
But if poverty was just a state of not having enough money, it would be so much easier to solve because poverty isn't just that. Poverty is this exhausting piling on of problems. It's like tooth rot on top of depression, on top of like the nauseating fear of eviction, on top of putting your hands in a in the, uh, putting your life in the hands of a public defender on top of not giving your kids enough to eat on top of living in neighborhoods where you're surrounded by violence often and destitution poverty is not a line it's this tight knot of social maladies it's the suffocation of your dreams it's it's a it's a robber of your talents it's death come early you know for poor black men in america they have a life expectancy of of men in pakistan and mongolia right now so that's what poverty is and i think that taking that into account should give us some moral urgency should say this is this is a problem that has to be at the top of our uh, national agenda. You mentioned that um, people aren't poor because of their personal history and conduct. And interestingly, you you end one chapter with uh, the line: "Poverty persists because some people wish and will it." And we benefit from poverty in ways that, until I read your book, it never like the penny had never dropped. And since I've read your book, I'm questioning a lot of the things I'm going about thinking you know how do I create wealth for instance and there is a chapter on how do we undercut the poor how do we exploit them and there's many factors to that can you start to kind of outline the ways in which um, say through our ISAs our pensions uh, I don't know if the acronyms are the same but uh, like SIPs uh, index tracker funds these all have a part in making people poor. Can you outline how corporate greed, you know, all of this starts impacting? Okay, this is a big question, so bear with me a little bit. So um, I ran across this line in uh, by Tommy Orange, the novelist, and it goes like this. Um, These kids are jumping out of burning buildings, falling to their deaths, and we think that the problem is that they're jumping. And when I read that, I was like, that's a perfect encapsulation of the poverty debate in America. And I, I think the poverty debate in the UK as well. There's so much attention pointed on the poor themselves, the jumpers, and we've neglected the fire. And so this book is really about the fire. It's about the people that lit it and people who are warming their hands by it. So what does that mean? And who, who are those people? Many times when we have this conversation, we talk, to like, we talk about super rich people you know, the top 1%, the top 0.00%. And that's an incredibly important conversation to have, and it's incredibly absolving for a lot of us. It lets a lot of us off the hook. So the book tries to make a case about how we're all connected and how our connection often means we unwittingly uh, contribute to poverty all around us. So one thing that the poor face is unrelenting exploitation in the labor market, in the housing market, in the financial market. Let's talk about housing, right? And so in the housing market, poor families usually have one choice about where to live. They can rent or let from a private landlord and devote at least half of their income to housing costs. That's the typical case for American renting families below the poverty line. In the UK, the the number, the percentage of private renter units has increased from 9% in 1988 to about 20% today. Thatcher's kind of creation of an ownership society has really turned into a renter society. 
Because poor families have just one choice, landlords can take advantage of that, and they do. And they overcharge poor families for crummy housing in bad neighborhoods. And so if you look at the data and you ask, how much are landlords in poor neighborhoods making? They're not just making double. They're not making just more than what landlords in affluent neighborhoods are making. They're making double. They make twice as much in profits. Why? Because the property values and tax burdens are way lower in poor neighborhoods, but rents aren't that much lower. So like in Milwaukee, if you, lend, if you lined up like all the apartments, um, the, the apartment in the poorest neighborhood in the city would only be about $50 less than the citywide median. So you get like way uh, a neighborhood of much more poverty, much higher crime, school system that has much lower levels of graduation, housing that's crumbling, and you're not paying less for it, you know? That's exploitation. Who benefits from that? Landlords benefit from that? Sure. But so do a lot of homeowners who make housing scarce to prop up their own value. So do a lot of homeowners in America that get this thing called a mortgage interest deduction where we can deduct the interest of our mortgage from our taxes. That costs my nation $190 billion a year, which is the amount that we spend on affordable housing programs tripled and you still have money left over. So we fight for that, we keep that, we hold that on, and then we say like, well, the waiting list for public housing now is not counted in, in years anymore in America, it's counted in decades, but I still need this tax break. So that's, w that's one example of how exploitation isn't just, in the housing market, isn't just a landlord-tenant relationship, it's often a, a relationship that involves homeowners as well. Uh, you, you talk about landlords and tenants as a relationship, and in some cases, it's not pure greed. It is almost, they failed to maybe save for their retirement, so the investment in property services right. those silver years. But also, you mentioned access to credit, like the mortgages people can't own because they can't be lent the money to do so. And there's the planning regulations that, prohibit the building of a certain type of building that would lend itself to public housing. Yeah. Therefore, you, you talk about, I think, Milwaukee in at one point, which you go into deeper detail, um, and you say that it's not a question of supply and demand and housing shortages, which right. is one of the myths we talk about but uh, to ourselves. But you, you talk about those facets of credit and money and the planning and the politics. Can we look at the money side of it, can I can I say redlining and usury, or are they too like too hard a term to use? Oh, this is your podcast. Oh, <laughs> let's do it. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> redlining, usury. Um, yeah, it's almost yeah. Let's talk about the racial element. The you know those those elements of uh, keeping the poor poor. Sure. So let's 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 focus on usury. Let's focus on debt. And so um, banks in America uh, charge about $12 billion in overdraft fees every, every year. Only 9% of, of bankers pay those fees. So who are those 9%? They're the unlucky poor bankers that are m made to pay for their poverty. You can overdraw your account by like 20 bucks in America and end up paying 200 bucks for that because the bank kind of piles on fees and often those fees kind of are reoccurring. 12 billion bucks. A lot of poor folks aren't banks, though, and part of that is a racialized phenomenon because African-Americans in particular have been excluded by banking. Banks have left black communities and often feel that those hidden fees are a, a kind of a trickery, and they'd rather kind of have the devil you know. So poor folks spend over a billion dollars a year just to cash their checks 
just to pay someone to cash their check. And then you have tons and tons of people that don't have access to credit, either have no line of credit or have bad credit. And in a pinch, they turn to the payday lending industry in America, which um, you know you can take out a $150 loan and end up paying $500 on it over, over, the, over the course of that loan. And we can break down how that works. So basically, you take out a short-term loan, but your problem usually isn't short-term. So you often paying again and again. And if you add all that up, you know, you learn that every day there's $60 million in fees that are kind of pulled from the pockets of the poor um, just to allow them to get access to their own money they earn and their own credit. In a check cashing business, for example, it, it costs you 1% to 10% of your check to, c to cash. So if you work $10 an hour uh, for two weeks, you can up end up losing like between 1 and 10 hours just to get the money you you earned. Who benefits from that? So, you know, payday lending uh, stores do, but also banks that actually allow and, and finance those kind of industries. And also those of us that have access to free checking, because those free checking accounts are subsidized by folks that don't have free checking. So I think that this is a clear example of exploitation, and it's a clear example of how we can regulate those, those fees out of existence. And is there is there a way in which um, that can be kind of realigned simply? Um, could we can we afford to give people uh, that can't get credit some line of credit even in at a reasonable rate? Yeah, I mean studies have shown that banks could undercut the payday industry by charging far lower but still high interest rates. Like so they could charge like twenty percent or forty percent interest rate, and not not like six hundred percent, which would be a huge benefit. But banks just haven't like gotten into those waters. They haven't they haven't uh, wanted to take that reputational cost. You know who else could do it though is the, the the faith community in America. The faith community is sitting on tons of capital, especially in land holding, and they could leverage like reputational networks and loans to be able to like say, oh, your lights are about to turn off. Like I'll lend you two hundred bucks. Susie is vouching for you. Oh, like you're about to get evicted. We'll float you 500, you have this vouch for here, but they haven't, they haven't done that yet. The faith community, um, if they did help, that would be in kind of similar vein to how the government kind of assists the poor. One, one of the myths that we, we tell ourselves is that if the poor work harder, they can climb out, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. What do the government do to alleviate poverty? Some of the schemes have been long standing like uh, earned in income tax credit, which has it's got a little bit of a perverse angle, hasn't it? You talk about this in the book, that corporations support it because it benefits them as well. But what do the government do to fund, you know, getting people out of poverty, even though it's had like a negligible effect? So I, on the first question about working, working your way out of poverty, I don't, I don't know if we really believed that ever. I know we said that. I know we said that, but I don't think we believed it, like in our hearts of hearts. I think it's kind of like what our rent says about propaganda, that it's not that you believe, you just it just organizes us. And it's kind of like when you're getting married or having a kid, and like everyone just tells you stuff. And like you're like, do they, is this, this is like, just like, cliche, this is advice. They don't believe it. It's just like a thing they say. Oh, you're getting married, this thing. And so, um, 
I think that that's the function of bootstrapping had in in Western countries. It allowed us to just not have the conversation, but I, I just don't I just don't think we could like ride a bus and look at like the nurses' aid that has just pu pulled a double shift and is falling asleep in her seat and be like, gosh, you can work your way out of poverty. I just don't I just don't think we believe that anymore. If we ever did, on the on the question about policy, this is another quite big question. But here's something that was interesting to me in looking into this puzzle in America, because the poverty rate in America has basically been the same for like 50 years. Like since the Beatles broke up, same amount of poverty. Like we invented the internet, we s uh, eradicated smallpox, like we did all this stuff. And poverty's like between 15 and 11% in America. So why? And so one of the reasons you might think why is maybe the government's just stopped spending money on it. And this is like a popular story among progressives neoliberalism ascended, Reagan, Thatcher, they pulled back. They did stuff. They certainly, uh, they, you know, Reagan at least had massive cuts to the wealthy, but he wasn't able to pull back a lot of spending on anti-poverty programs. He destroyed public housing. But a lot of the other programs actually grew during Reagan's time and continued to grow after him. So if you look at per capita, let's geek out just a little bit. One that Per capita welfare spending on like the 13 biggest uh, programs that we spend on the poor in America called mean-tested programs. That went from about $1,000 per person the first year Reagan was elected president to about $3,400 per person the first year Donald Trump was elected president. That's a 237% increase. Big increase in poverty spending. Poverty stays the same. Why? And so we could take a conservative line and be like, well, anti-poverty programs don't work. But that's just not true. The Great Society and the War on Poverty that was launched in 1964 cut poverty in half. America reduced child uh, poverty rates by over half during COVID in six months with like this thing called the child tax credit. So like we know that programs can work, but why isn't this increase in spending having this more durable effect on the poverty rate? And the reason, one of the big reasons is the labor market isn't pulling its weight. So when the war on poverty and great society were launched in America, unions were strong. You can get a decent job. Your wages increased on average 2% a year. You can advance in the company. You had some benefits. Our labor market is not like that today. Unions are weak. Wages are stagnant. For someone with a high school diploma, they make less today than they would have 40 years ago. And so it's kind of like the withdrawal of the labor market from like the standard work contract has made anti-poverty programs something like dialysis. It's not something that's curing poverty. It's something that's just sputtering it on. And so this is a big call for the book that we don't just need deeper poverty programs. Like progressives like to just say more. Like more, more, more. We need more of that thing we're doing. But the book is like saying that would help, but we need different programs too. We need programs that disrupt poverty and not accommodate it. And talking about those programs that have seen an increase in spending but haven't alleviated anything, what do you feel needs to change? You talk about deeper universal programs and the COVID spending by the government reduced the gap. What would be the ideal scenario for you uh, as a sociologist to see poverty actually being solved? So I think we need to not only expand and deepen our investments in low-income communities, but we need to empower those communities as well, build power. And that is just a, I don't know, inspiring way maybe? I don't know, uh, way of saying we need to confront exploitation. Uh, if we don't, it's like pouring money into a leaky bucket. Uh, so a study has shown that like when cities increase the minimum wage, people have an easier time paying their rent for a little while, 
and then the housing market catches up and recoups some of the, the benefit. Or if you uh, look at history, like in the 19 or 1830s in America, there were these huge labor strikes and workers were in the streets and the landlords went to the industrial capitalists and were like, yo, can you help us put down these workers? And the landlords are like, no, because when you guys have to raise their pay, we get to raise the rent. And that's exactly what happened. So you have to find it from both angles. On the deepening investment part, just one quick stat that blew me away. So if there's a study that was recently published that showed that if the top 1% of income earners in America just paid the taxes they owed, we could raise $175 billion a year. Did I already say that here? I can't remember. Okay. If the top one per so you're not like gasping. So the, <laughs> the top one percent of Americans just paid what they owed. We could raise an additional 175 billion dollars a year, which is almost enough to lift everyone out of poverty. Every child, every parent, every grandparent. So we have the resources and we know how to do this. But we need to fight and establish things that are permanent, right? We need to cut the cancer out. So in the labor market, that doesn't mean just increasing wage subsidies or bumping up. You know, it means like giving workers power. So it means like making organizing easy. Uh, it means even the playing field between the bosses and the workers. So one thing I call for in the book, for example, is sectoral bargaining, which is just a fancy way of saying, look, in America, you have to organize like this Starbucks. Okay, we're fighting for months. We organize it. Now this Starbucks down the street, we have to organize it. And this one. But what if all the baristas in the country got together, took a vote, and that would charge the Secretary of Labor to, to organize a panel between worker representatives and boss representatives, and they could come to some sort of collective bargaining agreement? That's the way to organize all the Starbucks at once. That's one way to build worker power. In the housing sector, we need more choice. We need to expand the choice of families. So one of the things the book calls for is uh, Investing in home ownership for low-income communities. Now, in Britain, I, there's, none, there's some baggage about that, but hear me out on this one. So, in the U.S., last year, 27% of all homes sold were for less than $100,000, but only 23% of those were financed with a mortgage. So, like, most of those were just bought up by speculators or landlords. Why? Because are they riskier mortgages? No, but just banks don't make that much from lending you $70,000, they make a lot of money lending you $700,000. So this is where the government can step in and work with banks to incentivize them to offer small dollar mortgages so families could own the homes that they're living in. That would greatly reduce their everyday housing costs and you wouldn't have this like hold your breath rent hike scenario that comes, that comes every year. And then there's an argument in the book about we these walls that we've built around our communities. They have to go, and we have to finally end our embrace of segregation in America and, and reach for inclusive communities, which means things like not making it illegal to build affordable housing on most residential land, which it is today in America. So lift the floor, empower the poor, and end segregation. And some of the government help has been left on the table. Yeah, I'm thinking of the the TAMF dollars, the assistance for needy families, yeah, yeah something like that. That money doesn't always get directed to the people it's designed right. for. Um, I don't want to go into the corruption or the misuses, um, but is there potentially a way in which that money could be directed straight to the people rather than allocated state by state? Can the government actually, um, what is it, universal basic income? Yeah, yeah, that kind of uh, buzzword from a few years back. Do you see that as a feasible solution? 
So let me tell you a story about my friend Wu in Milwaukee. So uh, I lived with Wu uh, in, a, in a rooming house in Anderson, Milwaukee. He was this amazing gregarious, he is this amazing gregarious um, tall black man. He called me uh, Andy and he told me to call him Red, like the guys in Shawshank Redemption, which Wu always called the Shawshank Reduction. And he had diabetes. And um, when we were living, uh, shortly after I moved out, he stepped on a nail in the apartment and just didn't pay a lot of mine. He like worked crazy hours. He was a security guard, often pulled double shifts. And uh, the infection uh, caught up with him and he lost his leg. He had to have his leg amputated. And so I met Wu in the hospital after that happened and we, you know, we cried together and then we got down to business and I helped him to apply for disability. He couldn't be a security guard anymore. And his disability claim was rejected, which in America is like just like a normal par for the course. It's like part of the application process. So then Wu hired a lawyer, a disability attorney, and um, who fought for his case and won, not because, and Wu couldn't afford a lawyer, but like the, the guy works on commission. So if they win, he gets a cut of the back pay. So the lawyer took home like 400 bucks and Wu got some back pay, which he used to buy a van that like caught on fire a few years later. So I started looking into like, how much are disability lawyers paid? And every year they're paid like over a billion dollars collectively in the United States. Now, Wu didn't lose any sleep over this, but like it drives me crazy that like a billion dollars of social security benefits aren't going to people like Wu who are on disability or have been disabled, but are going to lawyers to help people like Wu get on disability. That's just one example of how the, you know, a money that's written in a federal budget doesn't mean a money in your pocket. So you mentioned TANF, which is just our, our it's our welfare uh, system, cash assistance. It used to be an entitlement, now it's not. And so if you look at the numbers, for every dollar of TANF that's uh, written into the budget, there's only 22 cents that an ends up at a family's pocket on average. So where's the other money go? So like Maine uses the money for like a Christian summer camp. Pennsylvania uses the money for like anti-abortion uh, marketing. Mississippi basically swindled and, you know, m the money away, which is incredibly criminal. So I think that, you know, we can think, uh, the low-hanging fruit here is to make sure we kind of, are more directive of those funds. There's this other thing that happens too, which is like a lot of poor folks don't take advantage of aid that's designed for them. And so like there often is this rhetoric in our two countries about welfare dependency, like it's welfare of poor, so welfare dependent. But like what's insane to me is welfare avoidance. Like, like if you add up all the money that, that is left on the table in food stamps and unemployment insurance and government health insurance, and this earned income tax credit, which is for working poor families, y you learn that like every year, poor folks just turn away from like $140 billion. They are like terrible at being welfare dependent. I wish they were better at it. So another low hanging fruit is just to make sure that, and so why? So is it like stigma? Are people like embarrassed? That's what we used to think, but the research hasn't backed that up. It just doesn't seem like, like the take up rates, which is the fancy way of saying the percentage of people that use like food stamps in like Oregon, is 100%, 100% of people that could, that qualify for food stamps use it. In California, it's like 63%. So like, is, is food stamps like really stigmatized in California and not in Oregon? Like, of course not. So what's happening is we've made these programs really confusing and hard to apply for and reapply for. So we can do these like ridiculously simple things, <laughs> like literally market the aid. So if you change the font and make the font bigger and easier to read and walk people through the process, like the take up rates just shoot up. And so this is another really like low-hanging fruit that we can do to, to connect folks that 
to, to programs they, they need and deserve. That when we, at least when it comes to poverty alleviation, when we have abdicated power to the states, that has in general been a bad move for poor families. So we talked about the TANF, um, only 22, you know, for every dollar spent on welfare, 22% ends up in the, uh, your hand, in your pocket. Wh why is that? Well, that's because it's distributed in this way that gives states incredible leeway over how they spend their money. In America, it's something called a block grant. And it's literally illegal for the federal government to have oversight over how states spend their money. And so that means states have taken a lot of liberties of doing so, and they have. Only one state, Kentucky, gives most of the welfare dollars as dollars in hand. And so um, I do think you can view states or cities as these like laboratories of democracy, these cool experiments. But at the end of the day, I think that the, the country has to pony up. Uh, when you talk about the states being able to distribute that money as they see fit, and Kansas actually uh, interprets that as putting the dollars in the, in the people's hands, is there research to see what kind of effect that is having? Is is Kentucky showing metrics compared to other states? That's a good question. I don't know the answer to that question. I do know that welfare was reformed by a Democrat, Bill Clinton, in 1996. Since that happened, and so what happened when we reformed welfare was... Like, no one really liked welfare, right? Like, you'd go to this big building, you'd go through this degradation ritual. Um, and so the Democrats were like, okay, let's take this benefit away, let's replace it with the earned income tax credit, we're gonna if you work, you shouldn't be poor, this was kind of the line. And, and we pulled welfare, we were like, kicked millions and millions of people off the rolls. And then the Democrats held their breath, and the poverty rate didn't go up. And they were like, we dodged a bullet there. Poverty rate didn't go up. Uh, but we just didn't wait long enough. The 90s were like a super hot economy. And uh, what we've seen in the years after welfare reform uh, is this, this growing increase of extreme poverty, like Americans living on 2 to $4 a day. And by some estimates, the number of kids living on $2, like in $2 a day families has grown over 200% since welfare was reformed. So I don't know if Kentucky's doing something. I don't know if the, the evidence is in that, that the Kentucky effect has a, a lasting effect. I do think the evidence is in that the, how the nation decided to invest in its poorest families has really helped to contribute to this growing hard bottom layer of poverty in the richest country on the planet. What impact would you like to see Poverty by America have in creating change? Yeah, well, obviously the politicians will read my book and then they'll just change things. Um, I think that... Um, if you look at the 1960s in America, Congress was like a hot mess. Uh, it was really polarized. Uh, the Southern Democrats were voting with the Republicans, blocking any kind of progressive legislation. Senators were sleeping in their offices to filibuster civil rights legislation. And in that crucible, the modern civil rights movement won victory after victory after victory. Major civil rights legislations in 64, 65, 68. The war on poverty was birthed, the Great Society was birthed, that created the modern welfare state that established Medicaid, built out Social Security, made food stamps permanent, cut poverty in half. So what, like, so the, if the Congress looked like it does today, how did that, how did that uh, come to be? And I think there's convincing evidence that just movements, especially the civil rights movement and the labor movement, put unrelenting pressure on lawmakers. They forced their, their hand. And I think my hope is in the movements today. It's in movements that are 
fighting for uh, better wages, fighting for housing justice, fighting against exploitation. And those movements are growing and, and building in America. And so I think that we need to join those movements. Now, often when, I, when someone says that, you think marching in the street. And if you guys want to march in the street, go for it. We need people that march in the street. But movements also need like lawyers and advertising you know, um, executives and people that own and run bookstores. And like, there's all these things that we can be involved in. Think of the environmental movement. You know, you might be involved in the environmental movement because you're a member of the Sierra Club or you change yourself to a, a tree somewhere or, um, you know, or you're voting and you're pushing your electeds like this. But you also might be an environmentalist because you're like vegetarian or you drive a certain car or you refuse to go on long plane rides or something. And so I think we can adopt this identity of becoming poverty abolitionists, being like, I am not going to stand for this in my country or in my own life. And a poverty abolitionist believes that poverty isn't just like a minor social problem, but an abomination. And it shares that with the movement to abolish slavery or prisons. And it also, he also shares the commitment that poverty diminishes all of us just like slavery diminished all of us. And so I think that a poverty abolitionist does things like votes and joins movements and pushes for bold, expansive policy, but also does things like think about where we're shopping and think about where we're investing. Um, I think it does things in America, it, it requires a searching of our, our tax breaks and you know really starting a kind of new discussion with our neighbors instead of griping about the taxes we pay, like gawking at like, I can't believe I get this stupid tax break I don't need and that's a in a country that has mass squalor and homelessness. Like this is ridiculous. That would be like a totally different backyard conversation in America to have. And a poverty abolitionist opposes segregation. And that's not just an abstract thing. Like in America at least, that means going to a zoning board meeting at Tuesday night when there's a proposal on the table to build a affordable housing development in your community and you stand up and be like, I would love that here. I want that here. I refuse to deny kids opportunity my kids have enjoyed by living here and I'm not gonna do it in their name especially, build a thing. So I do think there are ways that we can intertwine ourselves and our daily lives with, the, with this mission. When there is talk of movements, what can we do in education? So when I think of education, I think of integration. Because in the United States, I don't know if it's the same here in the UK, it used to be the case that poor schools got a lot less resources than rich schools because the way we funded them was through property taxes. So like if you were in a neighborhood, I love telling the story in Europe. I remember telling this in Amsterdam once and people were like, are you serious? Like you have a civilization? You don't even have a civilization. So like if you, <laughs> if you lived in a neighborhood with like big houses that were worth a lot and you paid a lot of taxes, like the school just got gobs of money. And if you lived in a down market neighborhood, it was the opposite. So uh, America's actually addressed that problem. And so if you look at the spending per students in the poor schools and in the richest schools, they're about equivalent now. But the opportunity is not equivalent, right? And so there's been studies that have, that have taken kids and they've, they've kind of randomized the, the schools they go to. And some of the poor kids go to integrated schools and some of the poor kids go to poor schools with like ridiculous amounts of resources, just like a fire hose of resources in those poor schools. But you know who does better? It's the kids that go to the integrated schools. Uh, they do better. And so when I think of 
education, I think of it in those terms, where we need to open up our classrooms and, uh, and make sure we have room for opportunity. Now, some parents might be like, well, what about my kids, right? But there's also evidence to address those fears too. So there's a great book by an economist named Rucker Johnson. And what he does is after Brown versus Board of Education, which was our signature case in America that ended legalized school segregation, the separate but equal clause, um, s some states had like federal decrees where like they had to actually get their act together. They had to do what the, the federal government said they uh, should do or, or else, and some states didn't. So Johnson kind of takes that and exploits that. It says we can like actually compare the kids that went to these integrated schools because they were forced, the states were forced to versus kids that didn't. And the kids that went to integrated schools did so much better than their peers. And the white, and the white kids in those classes didn't lose a step. They didn't stay off track. So it suggests that the pie is totally big enough to go around. So that's kind of that's kind of how I think of education. We know that education can be this powerful uh, lever of, of mobility, uh, but only if it's done in this way where we're we're sharing prosperity. I think and and education doesn't just mean in the classroom; it also means in the neighborhood and home and community. What are your thoughts regarding home ownership as a way out of poverty? I think that there are certain ways to expand opportunity in the housing sector that are anti-commodification. And so that would be things like deepening our investment in permanent, stable, public, affordable housing. It would also be deepening our investment in things like land banks, right, which are giving poor folks kind of loans like zero interest or low interest loans so they can buy apartments and turn them into like cooperatives, like tenant-owned cooperatives, which are kind of run by the tenants themselves. And it, they're kind of these beautiful models of, you know, you own your home and when you leave, you can sell, but not for a big markup, just a little bit of a markup so it stays affordable. And, and, um, and often like it, you know, the equity, some of it goes into the bigger land bank or the bigger movement to keep buying this. So there are ways of doing that. I think a lot of families, they don't want that. You know, they don't want that. They want their own home. You know, this is such a powerful myth in America. And I think there are ways to deliver on that I remember meeting a woman named Lakia Higby in Cleveland a few years ago, and she rented a four-bedroom home. It was 950 bucks a month. Not bad, she thought, even though like, it was cr pretty run down and crummy. But if she just bought that home under conventional mortgage standards, she would basically pay $500 a month with no rent hikes, right? She would have $4,500 more in her pocket every year. And so for me, that seems incredibly attractive. Does it open up opportunity for predation? Yeah. Yeah, I think it does if we're still working with private lenders to do that. But this is why I think, you know, a government on-ramp has to be part of it. There are things that we've done in the past that were like good ideas and executed terribly. Like public housing is probably like the best example. Like public housing is a great idea. And then America's like, you know what we should do? We're going to build like Soviet-style giant gross towers and s put them in really poor segregated communities. And so, like, now we have this idea of, like, public housing and the idea was really bad. It's like, no, the execution was, like, piss poor, though. Or, like, company housing. You know, we also talked about company towns where, like, the, the uh, businesses were responsible for housing people. And that got kind of got really I icky and, like, patronizing. But you know who benefits from company housing? Me, university professor. University has housing, and I live in it. And you know what? It's great, you know? And so I think that there are ideas, like, just because we went wrong one way. I think we can learn from those ideas and not throw out the baby with the bathwater, as we say. Super wonky question to end on, but still a, a really good one. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening. I wish to thank Matthew for visiting the UK to share his time, research and insights. Visit our website, liberia.io, for news of future events and book recommendations.